A uh, few announcements, you know, I, I only get up here every few weeks, so if I miss something or you want to fill something out for me, raise your hand and please do, because I'll probably butcher something. But uh, two announcements I know is uh, good friends of our church that help with uh, ESL classes and the like, uh, Charlotte and Diego Lopez. There's going to be a baby shower here next Saturday, right? June 5th at 1 o'clock. You're right, two Saturdays from now, but I was, that's, that's what I'm saying. So two Saturdays from now, uh, June 5th, 1 o'clock. Uh, I'm told it's for men and women. I'd be lying if I said I was excited about that, but I am going to go. I've been told there's going to be great sandwiches and cakes and all that kind of stuff, but they are really sweet people. This is their first, uh, first child, so uh, please come, uh, Rachel, and I think, Maybe uh, Rachel's sort of spearheading that, so I know it's going to be well done and good. I encourage you to go to that. Everybody is welcome to that, and it's going to be here at the church. Um, the other one is the session met this week, and we talked about you know all kinds of things. But one of the things that we've wanted to do is to try to you know uh, coming out of post COVID and this and that, we really want to try to boost our ability to. Uh, extend hospitality and community outreach. And to do that, we want to sort of eliminate one speed bump is we're going to uh, establish kind of an account or a special giving fund. And we've actually put a little money in it uh, for anybody that has an idea or wants to do some community outreach. Uh, hey, I want to have this family over for dinner. I want to do this. I've got an idea for that. We're going to have some funding available to assist you in that and assist all of us in that as we want to do ministry. So all that to say, we don't want finances to be a, a speed bump. So if any of you want to contribute to that, it's designated giving. You just write it in an envelope, cash an envelope with that on it or something in the memo line. And uh, Tom's going to send out something on flock notes to kind of fill that out even better for us. So uh, it's not a plea for money. It's just a hey, we care about doing community outreach and we want to sort of get going with it post-COVID. So be thinking about the ideas and uh, we'll remove any, any financial hurdles uh, as best we can to do that. Uh, with that, uh, you know, there's tons to pray about, uh, but I did want to highlight, a lot of you know that Matt's uh, stepdad has passed from COVID and his mom is, is pretty, pretty intensely uh, in the hospital. Dave just got an update. I just asked him, if you would read your update, that would be better than me trying to remember it. Well, he asked for prayer because his uh, mother had a test which could indicate a turning for the worse. So. Okay. So let's keep praying for Matt up there. I mean, he's from here. He's up in Pennsylvania. I, you know, I've had my own dad in his 90s go through COVID, so I have a taste of what he's going through. And uh, just uh, let's pray for Matt. Let's, let's lift Matt up this week as well, as well as others, uh, which uh, many are, are known to. Is there anything else we can pray about or anything else anybody wants to call attention to that I missed or hacked? I see a finger, a point. I'm following the point. Yes, for sure, Andy's dad. And I, we're going to pray. keep praying for your dad, Andy, Charlie. I mean, I know I'll cover a lot of the prayer requests during our corporate time for sure. Uh, but yeah, we're going to keep praying for your for your dad as well, Andy. All right, with that, uh, let's go ahead. Hey, this is our chance to worship, right? This is what we're getting ready to do for all eternity. Let's enjoy our time together. 
Uh, Andy's going to play a little bit, kind of a prelude to help us sort of calm ourselves and prepare to worship God. So let's uh, go ahead. If you're able and and would like to stand for our call to worship, I'll be reading uh, to you from Philippians, the second chapter. And God will call us to worship with this scripture. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we know this is no small thing to undertake this one hour, this one day in seven to worship you, Father. We thank you. We pray that you would be in and over everything we do as we pray, as we sing, as we fellowship, hear the word preached, Father. May you superintend through your Holy Spirit over every bit of it. May it be good and pleasing in your sight, done to your glory and a great blessing to all of our brothers and sisters gathered here this morning. For we ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So if you'll turn to your hymn book, old hymn here. So Rachel's going to help us with it. Hymn number one, All People That on Earth Do Dwell.
We'll uh, continue in our celebration of worship with, is our custom, a time of confession, right? Uh, so if you will, I'll lead us through that, and I'm going to give us a time of silent confession, and then we will receive uh, an assurance of pardon from 1 Timothy after that. So let's uh, bow our heads, but especially join our hearts together as we confess uh, together as well. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning very mindful of who you are and very mindful of who we are, hopeful and resting in what you are forming us to be, Father, even through confession of sin. Lord, we join with Paul this morning and say, I do not understand what I do. I do what I don't want to do. I do the things I hate to do, and I, and I keep on doing it, Father. I, I have a desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Father, that is me. That is us. Father, we ask now that you would hear our silent prayers of confession of your gathered and utterly dependent sheep that are gathered here this morning. Father, we marvel and revel this morning that you don't leave us there mired in sin, but you lift us up as sons and daughters of you. And now receive this word of assurance from 1 Timothy, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself to us as a ransom for all. We'll uh, continue on, as is our custom. We've been working our way through this uh, New City Catechism, and today I'll ask you question 21 from the New City Catechism. And so I ask you, Christian, what sort of redeemer is needed, needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. Let's say together the unison prayer printed in the bulletin together. O oh, Son of God, and Son of Man, for generations you were prophesied. Only one who is both divine and human could live in perfect obedience and be a fitting sacrifice on our behalf. There is no other way to God but by you. Let's stand together and sing a very familiar hymn, I think. My hope is built on nothing less. Hymn number 521.
Continue in this celebration of worship with a time of prayer. I'll walk us through the prayer time, and uh, we'll close by saying, um, saying the Lord's Prayer together as well. So let's join our hearts and bow our heads together before the Lord this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> our gracious, our kind Father, we, uh, we come to you today. We come to you sitting under the name of Jesus, embracing the name of Christian, Father, that we have taken on. It is really good to be able to come into your house this morning and have this time to put aside the cares of as I trust you are as well. Okay, we are in God's Word again. We pick up in the book of Nehemiah, which has been our series of studies this spring. And we're moving towards the end. And as we do so, we're going to attend to chapter 11 today. And let me just say this. It's 35 verses. I'm not going to read all of it. We're going to read a couple of portions of it. And then we're going to read several passages from the New Testament. Um, but just by way of reminder or to fill you in, if you haven't been with us, those of you joining us online, also via Facebook or uh, our website, the first half of the book, roughly, chapters 1 to 6, if you're interested, first half of the book was focused on rebuilding the wall. It was physical work that had spiritual implications. Rebuilding the wall, chapters 1 through 6. And then the second half of the book, chapters 7 through 13, again, we're in 11 today, 7 through 13 is about reforming the covenant community, reconstituting the covenant community. So the wall is finished, and now they're focusing on the people. And that will be our emphasis today. In our previous couple of Sundays together, uh, chapters 8 through 10 are about returning to God's word. And 
covenant renewal. In fact, I put together, in case sometimes folks are away for a week or whatever, I put together a little covenant renewal contract. You, you can grab these on the back table. Some of you already got them a couple of weeks ago. If you didn't grab one of these, this is, don't, you don't have to hand it in to me. This is between you and the Lord. But one of the things that we were talking about in Sunday school, led well by Ben this morning, is we we're talking about the covenant community and that in a local church, it's, it's not just to adopt the mindset, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's a good starting place. But it's also, I'm going to follow Jesus with these people, with this group of, of believers. And so some of that is expressed here in this little covenant renewal contract. You can grab one on the back table if you like, and uh, that would be for your own edification, okay? So what we're talking about today is the city of God, as I have termed it, the subtitle for today's message. The city of God. It's about repopulating Jerusalem. Um, where we left off the very end of chapter 10, the people together, this covenant community, they corporately say, we will not neglect the house of God. And then they begin to live it out. And these are some of the implications and repercussions of their decision together to follow the Lord together. So from Nehemiah chapter 11, right now, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and then drop down towards, towards the end, 22 through 24. And then we'll pray and talk about it. Hear then the word of God. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin, of the sons of Judah, Atiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez. All right, that was verses 1 through 4. Now drop down uh, in your pew Bible. This would be page 479. I've also provided the text on the back of your sermon outline. Now at verse 22. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pedahiah, son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. Let's pray. Lord, these ancient words uh, preserved uh, tell us not only the story of folks past, but 
tells us a little something as we interpret scripture with scripture of our own story as well. And so, Lord, for those of us who are not particularly students of, of history or Jewish genealogies, make us attentive to what your spirit has to say today. We pray this for our edification, for your glory, ultimately in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a few notes on the passage to begin with. Nehemiah chapter 7 instructed us earlier, telling us that there were few people living in Jerusalem and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Now, why would that be? That was because the walls hadn't been rebuilt previously and the city lay in ruins. It was a depressing place to be. It was not only depressing, it wasn't safe. In the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, walled cities, fortified cities, got lots of attention. They were strongholds. They were fortresses. They were also the first place that an invading army would attack. And this place had been leveled. It had been raised to the ground virtually. Hardly one stone was left on top of another. And so it wasn't safe, really, to live inside the perimeter of the city anymore. Now it's changed. Now they've come together in the short span, less than two months, 52 days. They did what for generations could not be done. They worked together many times outside of their area of expertise. You've got goldsmiths and perfumers and family units working together, restoring sections of the wall, um, several places thick in various points for about a mile and a half or two mile perimeter around the city. Now, and the gates are set back in place, now you could live back inside the city. They had been without walls for almost 150 years, a century and a half. One commentator calls it bleak. Think about you know, a place that had once been beautiful and a place of grandeur and safety and community and worship and beauty had been leveled and destroyed and a, a, a few efforts have been made here and there to do a little something with this, little, little something about that, but they, they never made a whole lot of progress. And now, under the efforts of not only Nehemiah himself, but the people that worked shoulder to shoulder with him and a couple of leaders, key leaders that preceded him, they've made some real progress. The city is inhabitable once more. Um, and so that's what they set out to do, to repopulate Jerusalem, as we said, so as not to neglect the house of God. Ultimately, the covenant community was held together through their corporate involvement of worship of Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God. Here in this passage, we see uh, several things, some, some highlights that I would draw attention to. Uh, first of all, they, they drew lots, they cast lots, and 10% were chosen. Uh, it's kind of like today we might talk about drawing straws. Oh, you got the short straw, you've got to do it, kind of thing. But it says that the people were, were grateful to those who volunteered. What do we make of this? Does that mean that the 10% had good attitudes, that they were willing to live in the city? Very, very likely. Uh, and or that some others volunteered to go with them. 
in terms of numbers, just to give you an idea of scope, uh, one scholar uh, estimates that about 3,000 men were chosen and assuming that his immediate family unit went with him, you know, wife and child, then, you know, if they're married, then you're talking roughly 10,000 people. And whether there were some volunteers or it is describing the attitudes of those who were chosen by lot before the Lord, there was a positive spirit. They, were, they, they didn't do this reluctantly dragging their feet, like I said, short end of the stick. No, they considered it an honor. They considered it a privilege to attend to the holy city, to attend to and not neglect the work and worship of the house of God. So it's interesting, uh, and, and by the way, they start with the key tribes, Judah, right? This was the southern regions. They start with Judah, and then nearby, Benjamin. Those are the two tribes that are featured in this text. And then we've got of the, uh, some of the priests and Levites, the tribe of Levi. So Judah, Benjamin, Levi, these are the three main tribes that are addressed in this passage. And it says they cast lots, and that sounds strange to our ear, Right today, we wouldn't do that at session meeting. Well, maybe we would do rock, paper, scissors for something. But for the most part, you know, we wouldn't cast lots and, and uh, you know, say, say that that was from God. But in the Old Testament, this was a common way to seek God's will. You might be aware there's a proverb. In Proverbs 16, there's a verse that says, the lot is cast into the lap. What does that mean, into the lap? Well, remember, in the Eastern world, uh, people wore cloaks, long flowing outer garments, and when you sat, it created kind of a pouch in, uh, in, in your lap. So the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They believe in the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. We could talk about the high priest and his use of the um, umim and thumim, but I don't see how that would benefit us at the moment. So in the New Testament, this practice existed. You remember? There was someone who betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is that? That was Judas, was the traitor. Well, so they went from 12 down to 11. What did they do? They decided to get a replacement. And Matthias, in Acts chapter 1, was chosen to be the 12th apostle, and that he was chosen by Lot too. Now, that practice you know, went away at some point. And so if you go to one of your elders today and you tell them, I'm trying to discern the will of the Lord, I'm trying to make a decision here about this, you know, which university to go to, which job to take, which girl to marry, or you know, what have you. If you're in decision-making mode before the Lord, we're not going to say, well, go home and put on a, a long cloak, you know, get a robe out of your closet and, and get some dice out of your Monopoly board. We're not, we're not going to say that. We're going to tell you the things that you would expect to hear from us which is, man, you need to be in the Word. First, you need to consider, sister, brother, you need to consider what the Word of God has to say on your subject. And, and by the way, in the New Testament, it's made very explicit in, as far as I can find, four and only four places in the New Testament. It says, this is the will of God. And I challenge you to go find those places, four places, in the New Testament, this is the will of God. You, you want to know the will of God? Start with that. Start with his revealed will in Scripture, his moral will for his people. And then we would add to that, we'd say, you need to, you need to bathe this in prayer. You need to be going to the Lord about this. 
and, and doing confession and asking the Lord to give you pure motives in, in your decision-making process here? And then what would we add to that? Godly counsel. Talk with somebody who knows you well. Talk with somebody who doesn't know you but knows about things like that and can be objective about your situation and perhaps speak into your life. That's how we would tell you to discern God's will today. Also to assess your circumstances, right? To make a pro-con sheet, a cost-benefit analysis, and put these things together, word, prayer, godly counsel, and, and assessing your circumstances. That's how we tell you to do your decision-making today. So it's kind of interesting that they had this practice. What else do we see from here in the text in Nehemiah chapter 11? Um, towards the end of what I read, verses 22 through 24, it mentions a fellow Pedahiah at the king's side. It literally means at the king's hand. We'd say today he was the king's right-hand man. Now, which king? King David, the great king of, uh, of uh, Israel, or uh, the Persian king, Artaxerxes? I, I'd go with the latter. That would be my interpretation. That uh, the king, remember, he had... Set, he had reversed foreign policy, and he had said, you all can do this now. You can rebuild this city. And he had somebody who had a vested interest in a supervisory capacity over this. It mentions the Levites, their assistance to the priests. They helped see, oversee what was going on in worship in the temple. And singers are mentioned. We're going to talk more about the singers next week. Um, but there was orders from the king. Again, I would take that to be from the Persian king, um, although perhaps it was vestiges from uh, temple worship under Solomon. Uh, orders from the king to support and provide for these singers. In fact, one of them is named, as we read, right, Asaph, A-S-A-P-H. If that sounds familiar, you've seen it perhaps as the inscription on some psalms, right? Uh, the songbook of God's people, 150 of them, and some were penned, you know, roughly half were penned by King David, but some are Psalms of Asaph. So these singers, their descendants. And so what this tells us is that the ongoing worship of the one true living God by the people of God corporately, this was still central to the covenant community. This was still very, very important. The note in the Reformation Study Bible on this passage says, Holiness has been expanding from holy vessels to priests, people, to the holy place, the gates of the walls, the Sabbaths, the entire city is now holy. Now, holy is one of those words we use commonly in church, and it sounds good, we know it's nice, but what does it really mean? Holy, to be holy means to be dedicated to the Lord, consecrated, devoted to the Lord, to be separated from that which is common or unclean, religiously, ceremonially, and to be holy. And that's part of the message of the book of Nehemiah, that, that as they're building a wall together, it's about holiness, as they're setting up the gates, as they're protecting and investing in, with human resources and with financial resources, what goes on in the worship of God, in the house of God, this is all about holiness. Why, why was Jerusalem so important? A couple, couple of notes here, and, and we'll deal with these in pretty short order. Why was Jerusalem so important? It's called the holy city. 
the city of David. It was to be, its name means in part, a city of peace. Salem, peace. And David's throne was here, right? This is in Judah. The temple where the Lord deigned to meet with his people and receive their worship and forgive their sins was here, in this place, in this locality. Not that God was confined to that, not that the, the, the temple could contain the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory, yes, but it was here, Jerusalem is the place where the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, would one day come suddenly to his temple. He would live here, or, uh, or minister here anyway. He would live, spend some time in Jerusalem or in the vicinity, as well as other places in Galilee. He would live, he would minister, he would weep over this city. Remember that, the triumphal entry? is also a tearful entry. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How many times I would have gathered you to me as a, as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. It reduces the Lord to tears. He cares about this place. He cares about the people of this place. And he would ultimately give his perfect life as a sacrifice for sin just outside the gates of this city. Let us therefore go outside the camp to him and to align ourselves, to associate ourselves with his suffering, his righteous life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection from the dead. And then brief comment before we move on to New Testament. Brief comment on the place of Nehemiah in redemptive history. Sometimes when you read, you know, you're a believer. That's why you're here today. You're interested in the things of God. You're interested in worshiping God with others. You're interested in the word of God. And so you spend time reading. You come hear a sermon like this. Or you spend time reading the Bible on your own. And you get to Nehemiah chapter 11. A bunch of really hard to pronounce names, which is part of why I didn't read the whole chapter for us. And you read it and you go, I'm a believer, and Lord, I'm supposed to get something out of this. I don't really know what that is, but it's very nice. What do I do with that? Well, I would remind you that from the Old Testament, in Exodus 19, it says that God's people were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, not just those who are descendants from Aaron or whomever to be priests, not just the tribe of Levi, but the whole nation was to be a kingdom of priests unto God. And today we believe in the priesthood of all believers, that all of us can pray, all of us can partake in the means of grace, the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper when we're together. All of us can go to our great high priest, our perfect high priest, Jesus. And God's people were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy, there's that word again, a holy nation. This thought is then repeated in the New Testament. You and I studied that together last summer, 1 Peter 2.9. It says the same thing. What else is the place of Nehemiah in redemptive history? Well, don't want to lose you with the history, but remember, this is the 5th century B.C. This is circa 435 now. This is the 5th century B.C., and what has gone on? God's people hadn't listened. Uh, you know, you had King David, the greatest king. 
his son Solomon. Then you had the divided kingdom, the divided monarchy in the north and the south. And the guys in the north, they blew it. God sent them prophets and they were not faithful and they didn't listen. And God used unbelieving, ungodly enemies of God's people, the Assyrians, to go and to judge his own people. Would he do that? Yes, he would. And he did it in the 8th century. And then northern kingdom fell. And then God sent prophets to the, the, the remnant of the people of God, the southern kingdom. He said, learn from what your cousins up north did. Learn from the lessons of them. Serve the Lord and him only. Not also serving other, the gods of the peoples, the gods of, of the land. Serve the Lord and him only. Repent and return to the Lord. Be refreshed from his presence. Look at the example of your cousins to the north. But no, they blew it too. And so they're deported off into exile. They're living away from the promised land. They're living away from home. And the city has been desolated. The, the temple has been desecrated. And circa 600 B.C., they all go away. And they, they've got some false prophets around. The false prophets are saying, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. Everything will be fine in just a really short time. And other true prophets of God are saying, don't listen to them. They weren't sent by God. It's going to be decades. And God is righteous when he judges his own people. Do you not know that judgment begins with the household of God? Believe the word of God. Listen to the prophets. Serve the Lord and him only, whether you're serving him in a foreign land, like Daniel and his friends, like Queen Esther in Persia, living faithfully to the Lord away from the land, or whether you're returnees from exile. So God raises up another foreign king, Cyrus, who gives this great edict and says, y'all can go home. And they say, good times. It's, everything's going to be fine now. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. We can tie a bow on it, and everybody will live happily ever after. And they get back to the land. There's three, there were three waves of deportation. Now there's three waves of returnees. Under first Zerubbabel, and then under Ezra, and then under Nehemiah. And they do make some progress. They relay the, the foundation for the temple. They start setting up the walls, but the, the work is halted and fits and starts. There's opposition. There are enemies. Enemies from without. There are undercurrents from within that are unseemly. And, and it disrupts the work of God. And policy is given by the Persian king. And there's a work stoppage. 12, 13 years later, they resume this work. And that's what we've been reading about together in the book of Nehemiah. Progress interrupted. I've, I've, I've entitled this series of messages, Restoration. And remember, Ezra and Nehemiah was one book. We did Ezra a year ago. Now we're in Nehemiah. I called Ezra Restoration. I'm calling this series Restoration Continued because we see it continue. But the progress is interrupted. It's not just celebrate good times, come on. It's hard. There's poverty. They're, they're not doing that well raising the crops as well as the fits and starts with the work itself. And all of this points to the need for a king like David. If only we had a king like David. And didn't God say that David would never lack for a man on the throne? 
That's what we need. And that is what they ultimately need. The ultimate Davidic king, Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of God. That's the place of Nehemiah in redemptive history. Okay, if all that doesn't really grab your fancy or you think kind of, so what's the point? Ho-hum, yeah, nice history. What do I do with that? What do we do with that? Well, let's, let's move on together in God's word. Look at letter B on your outline, New Testament elaborations and applications. How do we think about this together or severally, individually, when you're reading the Bible and you get to a chapter like Nehemiah? I mean, there's other lists and genealogies in Nehemiah that are a little more interesting than chapter 11. What do you do with this stuff? What's the big idea here? Well, I've got four points for you. Number one, God is redeeming a people for his own possession. In fact, when I, when I just talked about the place of Nehemiah in redemptive history, that's a term that is very dear to some of you, perhaps, but others are going, huh? Redemptive history. What, what is redemptive history? Redemptive history is God's big story. Redemptive history is, as J.I. Packer concisely summarizes the gospel, God saves sinners. That's redemptive history. It's the story of God unfolding his plan, his program of redeeming a people for himself. That's what redemptive history is about. And that's what God has been doing all along, redeeming a people for his own possession. Uh, the first Peter 2.9 passage is cited there for you, so we don't need to look at that again. Uh, I don't know that I flagged my verses today, so bear with me. Uh, Titus, we're going to read three or four of these. In, in the book of Titus, in chapter 2, it's uh, fairly important here. It says this. Verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace? Unmerited favor. God's kindness to us even though we don't deserve it. It has appeared. What does that mean? Jesus. Right? You're in church. You can't go wrong with saying Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Huh? I thought you said he has, it has appeared. Yeah? He came once and he's coming again. Remember that part? He comes back and... God wins. We get to be on his team, if you believe. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us. There's that word, redeem, ransom, buy back, buy out of slavery. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, corporately, right? A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We live out our faith. We apply the word of God in our lives. It's not just head knowledge. It should impact how your speech, your relationships, your conduct, your character on the job, in the home, in the neighborhood, in the community, as well as in the covenant community 
here in the life of the church, or the local church. The first Peter passage says not only has he chosen us to be a people for his own possession, it gives us the purpose for why he chose us. It says, that you may proclaim his excellencies. It's a purpose clause. There's a reason why he selects, elects, chooses, calls people to himself. It's that we would delight in the Lord and our delight in the Lord would bubble over so we couldn't help but tell others about him because he's great and he saved us. And perhaps he'll have mercy on them too. Second, we hope for a better country. We hope for a better country. So while PCA leaders such as a generation ago, James Boyce, and currently still today, Tim Keller, um, have advocated for Christians moving back into cities to reach and influence people for Christ. In other words, some, some pastors, I think, will make a, a valid modern-day application from Nehemiah 11 and say, y'all, some of us need to move to this neighborhood. Y'all, some of us need to move back into the city to reach it for Christ. I, I think that is a, a valid modern-day application. But certainly the big picture application here, number two, is that we hope for a better country that is a heavenly one. Listen to these words from the Hall of Faith, uh, Faith Hall of Fame, whatever you want to call it, Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. We call it promised land, right? As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And the author of Hebrews isn't just talking about Jerusalem. He's saying that Abraham was looking for the city of God. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore, these all died in faith. Abraham and Sarah and their descendants were still looking forward for, from their vantage point to a yet future day. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Strangers and exiles. That's language from what we just studied, 1 Peter. Resident aliens. Conduct yourself with fear, with reverence to God during your time as exiles. Right? Your citizenship ultimately is in heaven. And you're passing through this land, but you have real, meaningful relationships to engage in. Real, meaningful work to do. Real families to build a real covenant community to take part in. 
for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland and it's not in the Middle East. Third, in terms of, again, we're trying to understand, what do I do with stuff like Nehemiah 11 in the Bible? List of names, some guys that lived, a tough situation, now 2,500 years ago. What, what, what do I do with that? It's helpful to adopt these perspectives. Number three, Jesus completes the work of restoration. You're in Hebrews 11, if you're following along, look to chapter 12, which is not only about discipline, but get this. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I picked up at verse 8, I meant 18, forgive me. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What's that talking about? The Old Testament, Mount Sinai where Moses was the mediator between the people and the Lord, and they, they couldn't even bear to hear the words from the living God. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits, spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is, just as Moses was a mediator on Sinai between the people and God, Jesus, the God-man, is the one perfect mediator. That was in your order of, of, of worship. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, your assurance of pardon. There's one mediator between God and man. We know who it is. Isn't that awesome? It's Jesus Christ. And he is ushered in a new covenant. Cool, Tommy, keep saying covenant. What's that mean? Well, if we had time to go back to Hebrews 8, we would read in Hebrews 8 words from Jeremiah 31 about the character of the new covenant that Jesus has ushered in, a new covenant in which he writes his word not on tablets of stone, but in our hearts. A new covenant in which we have forgiveness of sins. A new covenant in which those who formerly were called not my people are now called my people. Because God, in his program uh, in redemptive history, has always been about redeeming a people for his own possession. And so if we read in Hebrews chapter 12, mention of the heavenly Jerusalem, that causes us, of course, lastly, to think of the book of Revelation. So Abraham wasn't just looking for the establishment of a town in the, middle of e in the Middle East. He was looking for the city of God, ultimately the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and so restoration continued. is isn't just about Zerubbabel and, and, and Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a, a, an apologetic for the true Davidic king, the one who genuinely will restore all things at the consummation of his kingdom. 
So Revelation chapter 21, last book of the Bible, right? And our last references to look up. We will be forever with the Lord, if you're a note taker, number four, we will be forever with the Lord on the new earth. And the glory of God will illumine the city. From Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 through 6, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, right, grief, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated, oh, that's where I wanted to end up. Sorry, sorry, back up. This is why I put my flags every week except this week, so I know where to start my reading. Revelation 21, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, here it is, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, people as a bride, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then I already read verse 4. Final thing, we drop down to verses 22 through 26 in Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. The last couple chapters in Nehemiah, we're going to talk about how to operate the gates, when to open them, when to close them. But this city, the heavenly city, the gates will never be shut. There will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, etc., etc. No temple for the new Jerusalem. Jesus is the final temple. It's important to be written in the Lamb's book of life. There's an old hymn, is my name written there? And I'd ask you, friend, is your name written there? Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you publicly identified yourself as one of his followers by joining a gospel-preaching church? Ultimately, it's about union with Christ and uniting with his body on earth, the church, the covenant community the city of God. Let's pray. Lord, we believe your word. We believe in your spirit. We believe that your spirit does his work, which is to illumine the word, to enlighten the spiritual eyes of our hearts that we might apprehend these things, for they are spiritually appraised. We're talking about building walls and building cities and and building relationships with real flesh and blood people because we have a real flesh and blood Savior, granted one who is now transformed, one whom we will one day be made like him. But these things are spiritually appraised. Help us to understand your word. Help us to love your word and treasure it and value it and prize it and to live it and, and to feast it on it and to revel in it 
We don't worship the Word, Lord. We worship You, the Word of God come in the flesh. Our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray in Your name. Amen.